We're going to return to our study in the book of James, James chapter 5. I was asked this morning, actually, what we're doing after James. And um, I think the answer is we're going to finish James, and uh, I'm not preaching this coming week, but uh, we'll do 5, 19, and 20 uh, two weeks from now, Lord willing. Uh, and I'll preach also in, you know, Christmas a Christmas uh, sermon. And then starting in January, we're going to do a, a series called Foundations of Grace. Uh, it's going to be uh, the philosophy of ministry of, of Grace Bible Church. We'll spend a few sermons uh, to be talking about the philosophy of ministry, why it is we do what we do. Uh, so I hope that you'll look forward to that. I hope you'll make plans to uh, be here for that. Um, my hope and desire is that we would transition into membership, uh, a sermon or two on the subject of membership and why we do membership, and then, uh, Lord willing, we will transition from there into eldership and why we uh, believe that eldership is what God would have in terms of uh, government for his church. So just be in prayer for that, for that time. Uh, for those to that series uh, called Foundations of Grace, be praying for that. Starting, Lord willing, January sixth is the I think the dates we're going to start, and uh, we will uh, after that. My prayer, don't hold me to this, but I think you can. I'm about ninety eight percent sure that uh, if the Lord has me on this side of the grave and standing in this pulpit, we'll go to Ephesians, and. Uh, and preach through Ephesians as our next book study. So that's what is coming up, coming forward. As was mentioned earlier, uh, the men met this morning, and we had a wonderful time of prayer. Uh, we, we discussed many things. We, we are in the book uh, Love or Die. Uh, we, we had some tangents, but we, I think we pretty much hit uh, the idea of love. Uh, we, the main verse this morning was, uh, let us... Let us consider how we might stir up one another uh, to love and good deeds, uh, Hebrews 10.24. And so we talked about that word consider and why that's the most important word in that verse that we should really take time to consider how we would uh, love one another by stirring them up to be loving toward one another and, and doing good deeds in the midst of the body. Just a wonderful time. I encourage the men, if they are not coming, can't come, haven't been able to come, to try to make time to come to that, that time on, on Sunday mornings. Well, as I said, we're in James, James chapter 5. I've titled my sermon, The Power, The Power of Our Relationships. Uh, James gives three simple commands that will give power to our relationships in the church. We are to first confess our sins to one another, James 5, 16. Uh, pray for one another, that's point number two. That's the second part of James 5, 16. And three, observe faithful examples. That's James 5, 17 through 18. Let me read, uh, let me pray and then we'll read the passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. We thank you that we can be here together. Father, I pray that you would bless this time. Uh, what a wonderful time of singing that we had. Lord, as you know, my heart was just abounding and thankfulness that we were able to sing to you in the way we did. Father, I thank you that you, uh, we were able to sing out to you and give praise to you in song. Now may we worship you by listening and, and hearing your word preached. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read verses, verses 13 through 18 for context. We're going to specifically be in verse 16 through 18 this morning. Actually, I'm going to go through 20. So, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruits. My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Corey Tinboom was a Dutch Christian, we've talked about her before, who with her family helped many Jews escape the Nazis during World War II. But they were betrayed and her entire family was arrested and imprisoned. Her father died ten, ten days after uh, they were arrested, and her and Corey and her sister were sent to a political concentration camp in the Netherlands, then to a Ravensbrück concentration camp where Betsy died, the, the sister. Following World War II, Corey became famous for her book called the, the Hiding Place, which gave her the opportunity to proclaim Christ, uh, the forgiveness of Christ. Uh, to thousands of people on speaking tours. It is in one evening on one of these speaking tours. So after she had spoken about the forgiveness of Christ at a church in Munich, she had a stunning encounter. Absolutely stunning. This is what she writes. This is what she writes of this encounter. She says, The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. That's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and brown hat, the next a blue uniform with skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, that huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes at the center of the floor, the shame of walking walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sticking out beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. That place was Ravensbrook. The man who was making his way toward me had been one of the cruelest guards there. Now he was in front of me, hand stretched out. A fine message, how good it is to know that, that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook, pocketbook rather than to take that hand. He would not remember me, of course, How could he remember one prisoner among thousands of women? But I remembered him. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard there, but since that time I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruelties I did there, but I would like to hear it from you as well. Again, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, who, who had sinned over and over and had been forgiven over and over, yet I could not forgive. Betsy, my sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? She says, for what could have been seconds, minutes, or hours, she wrestled with what to do. She prayed to Jesus to help her. In that moment, she realized that forgiveness is not an emotion, but an act of the will. And she woodenly gave her hand to him and said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment they grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. And she said, I've never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Brethren, confession and forgiveness truly lead to healing. Beloved, this is a story from our own time frame. Some of you may have even been living during that time. Or you know someone who did and and can recall those stories. So it is not so far removed from us as we may think. You know, I was thinking, there must have been similar stories during James' time. Similar situations. We, We don't know the exact stories, right? 
They, they've been lost to time. But if we did, I'm certain that they would bring tears to our eye, eyes. Just as this story of confession and forgiveness does. We've been studying this community of believers who were in what James calls the diaspora. They had been scattered abroad due to persecution for their faith. James wrote to them, he wrote this letter to them because he cared for them. They were struggling mightily with great difficulty. Unfortunately, these trials and difficulties made them turn, upon, turn on each other and, and fight uh, amongst each other instead of turning to the Lord. From the very beginning of this epistle, James has exhorted them to find joy in their situations. And he's also exhorted them to love one another. In James 1.19 he says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. See, James was very concerned with how these Christians were treating one another, especially as they dealt with great difficulty. Based on James's word, we can see that their sin toward one another abounded. Now, let's look at the different ways. I want to look at the different ways that James addresses their sin. Or, or let me say it this way, the different ways that they sinned against one another. First, we know from what we've read that they were angry with one another. In James 1.20, James says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. So evidently there were some in the group who had been treated wrongly, but they were lashing out in sinful anger. So James tells them that the anger of man does, does not achieve the righteousness of God. He tells them that the answer to this is to humbly receive the word of God implanted. You see, we're commanded, we're commanded to love one another. As, as brethren, we're commanded to love one another. Yet it is, it, it is impossible to remain sinfully angry at someone and love them at the same time. It's impossible. You see, love, love for the brethren, and sinful anger cannot coexist in your heart. And that's James's point. Secondly, they refused to do good works for one another, especially those who exhibited true need, like the widows and orphans. James says, in James 1.22, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You see, there were those in this community of believers who were sinfully refusing to help those in need. They had the means to help. They had the ability to help whether it be money or food or clothing, but they refused to lovingly assist those who needed it the most. So James addresses this with them. He tells them, be doers of the Word. Don't just say that you know the Word. Don't just, don't just listen to the Word, but go and, and act upon it. Thirdly, they were judging each other with partiality. Now, these were not just, this is not just the squabbling that we, uh, we uh, are familiar with or accustomed to. Uh, our, though we have to understand that our squabbling is in seed form just as sinful. Nevertheless, these judgments were much more serious uh, than the ones that we, that, that we make about one another. These were life and death judgments that were being made. These were murderous judgments that were being made. James told them that if, if they pridefully, get this, if they pridefully avoided adultery, yet allowed these partial judgments, they, were, they, had, they became transgressors of the law as murderers. Let that sink in for a second. They were sinfully, they were sinfully allowing these partial judgments without speaking out, without, without fighting against those who, and, and helping those who were in, who were in need. And James says, you're complicit to murder by doing so. Fourth, they didn't show mercy. They weren't showing mercy to one another. James says this, that he tells them that he warns them that judgment will be merciless to the one who's shown no mercy. You see, they had an opportunity to love one another by showing, by showing mercy toward their brothers and sisters in Christ, yet they refused to do so. 
They, had cho- they chose to allow these partial judgments that, that uh, by the rich against their poor brethren while looking the other way and choosing not to do anything about it. Fifth, fifth sin they were struggling with. They, they weren't bridling their tongue. They were not bridling their tongue. You see, James has, seems to have more to say about this sin than any other. That's probably because of the tongue's connection with our heart. James says, in James 1.26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, you think you're a Christian, right? You think you follow Christ, you think you're religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. You know what James says about this man's religion? It's worthless. It's worthless. If you can't bridle your tongue, if you can't... If you can't control your tongue, then your religion, you've deceived your own heart, and your religion is worthless. In other words, you can't claim to be a true Christian if you can't control your tongue. The reason for this is because our tongue reveals our heart. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which what? Which fills his heart. Our tongues always reveal the sin which resides in our hearts. We can't hide it. We might hide it for a while, but we can't ultimately hide it. You've heard people say things like, I I let him have a piece of my mind. Beloved, what we're really saying is I gave him or her what was in my heart, which isn't necessarily a good thing. Beloved, the godly man, the godly woman, always carefully measures what is is said. Always carefully weighs the words and their words and the balance of the word of God. Beloved, Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. We need to watch over our hearts. And therefore, when we do, the words that come from our mouths will reflect what's in our hearts. Out of your hearts, words spring, whether they're hurtful or for edification. James' people were downright speaking evil of one another. And sinfully judging one another. That's according to James 4.11. They were complaining about one another. That's James 5.9. They were speaking lies. They were casting aspersions. Sixth. Sixth. Sixth sin that we see in James. Their faith had no works. Therefore it was a dead faith. Their faith had no works, therefore it was a dead faith. This is perhaps the most indicting thing that James says. He says that their lack of works proves that they have a a or had a demonic faith. Let that sink in for a moment. Their lack of works proved that they had a demonic faith. They claimed to believe the Word of God. Remember, God is one. They believe that God is one. Yet, he says, the demons believe and they shudder. You see, the de- they, they claim to believe the, the Word of God, yet James warns them that the, believe, that the demons, that is, they believe and they shudder. Obviously, the demons have been judged by God, yet they know who God is. Now, we struggle with this concept in the modern church, don't we? We point to Ephesians 2 where Paul says, We are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, but it is a gift of God, not as as a result of works, so that no man may boast. Absolutely, absolutely wonderful, glorious truth that we have no part in salvation. That God does all the saving. That is a truth worth dying for. Yet this truth, that truth, does not contradict what James teaches in James 2. In other words, true faith in the Lord Jesus will always produce good works in the lives of those who believe. Always. 
Paul says it himself. Paul himself said that we were created for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would what? We would walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 These people, James's people, were they had a dead faith because their works did not show that they had a true faith. And that's what he's indicting them for in, a, in James chapter 2. Seventh. Seventh sin. They were selfishly ambitious and jealous of one another, which led to great chaos and disorder. They were selfishly ambitious and jealous of one another, which led to great chaos and disorder. James calls this a demonic, a demonic faith or a wisdom from below. He wanted them to understand that, that these sins always lead... Ambitious, selfish ambitiousness and jealousy always lead to chaos and disorder in the church. <coughs> James tells them that, that wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So, so beloved, we could turn this around then, and, and we could say that wherever there is chaos and disorder in the church... The root of it must be selfish ambitious and bitter jealousy. Selfish ambitions and bitter jealousy. Did you get that? We can turn that around. If there's chaos in the church, then the root of it must be this selfish ambitious ambition and bitter jealousy. Eighth, eighth sin they were struggling with. It's piling up, isn't it? Eighth sin. They were sinfully impatient. James says in James 5.8, You too be patient. Strengthen your heart for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, we can look at this in two different ways. And I, when I preached it, obviously it's, he's encouraging the poor brethren. He's encouraging them that God, that to hold on, that God, is, 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 that the Lord is coming back. The Lord Jesus Christ, that is. He's encouraging them to be patient as they suffered at the hands of these evil men. He wants them to understand that, that God will make things right. But we can't, we can't miss the fact that the reason he's saying this is that they're displaying impatience. The reason it's a con- concern of his, the reason he's telling them, be patient, is because they're being impatient. Impatience causes us then to lash out. And it also causes us to lash out against those whom we love. Sinful. Impatience causes our heart to dwell on, on the trials and to forget that all our difficulties are ultimately at the hand of God for His good purposes. Did you get that? Did you get that? We, we, it causes us to focus on the trial and it makes us, makes us forget that all our difficulties are ultimately at the hand of God for His good purposes. You see, James calls for his people to strengthen their hearts. He wanted them to know that while the trial may not change on this side of heaven, uh, we can look forward to the promises of God if we endure with great patience. You know, Joel Osteen has sold a lot of books teaching that we can have our best life now. Now, I've said this before. If you're having your best life now, you're headed to hell. We are in a lot of trouble in this world if this is the best that it gets. As Christians, we look forward to eternal life with Christ Jesus. We look forward to spending eternity with Him. Therefore, if we truly believe that, beloved, if we truly believe that we'll spend eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ, we can have great patience and perseverance as we endure great difficulty here in this world. So, then, impatience reveals an immature heart which can only be remedied by enduring great trials. Be careful if you pray for patience. Be careful. Ninth, they were making sinful oaths which they never intended to fulfill. James simply tells them to let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, do what you say you're going to do. Don't tell your brother or sister in Christ when they come to you for help, go away and come back tomorrow and I will help you. Or don't tell them, I'm going away for a year to make money so that I will be able to help you more then. Don't do this. 
because you never intended to help in the first place, making it this no more than an evil oath. James's point. Do what you say you're going to do. If you have it in your ability to help, then help. Now this all leads up to our passage today. As we have said, James is putting the finishing touches on this letter. Therefore, he is summing up all that he has said in the, in the body of the letter. And really, all this points then to ultimately broken relationships. You see, there's much pressure being brought to bear on these people. And what's happening is, is that it's, it's causing their character to be shown. And it's, and it's affecting their relationships. They were not following the royal law. We looked at it as men this morning. They were not loving their neighbors as themselves. James, James points that out to them. They're putting their own wants and desires above, above that of the brethren. And in doing so, they are proving that they certainly do not love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. It's Luke 10.27. Brethren, this is really all very instructive to us. I, I want to give you a newsflash. We struggle with the same sins. These sins are not unique to these people. If you are honest with yourself, you will see many of the same issues in your own heart. Therefore, James's answers which he gives in this passage are very instructive to us. Let's take a look at James's answers to these issues. James gives these three simple commands. These three simple commands. Starting in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. James just simply says, confess your sins to one another. Full stop, right? I'm sure many of you may be saying, but wait a minute. I don't know if I can fully trust these people. James must be saying something else. Surely there's a catch. There must be some fine print, right? Something that that changes this. But James is clear in what he's saying. In order to have right relationships with one another, for there to be supernatural power in our relationships, then we must confess sins to one another. The, the word confess, we can't, there's no wiggle room here. It's, it's to acknowledge, to admit. In other words, to confess our sins means that we need to acknowledge or admit them. We must look at sin as God sees it and acknowledge that we must turn from it. Jerry Ragg says this, True confession involves seeing sin as God defines it, without mitigation or blurring of lines, taking ownership of every nuance of offense caused by our sin and bearing the weight of it. End quote. The key here is to take ownership of every nuance of offense. You see, our tendency is to mitigate. Our tendency is to, to, to blur lines, to, to deny the effect on those around us. Our tendency is to make it less. But beloved, we must be willing to look at the nastiness of our hearts and admit the wrongdoing. I remember when I was a kid, we would turn over rocks. When I was a small kid, we'd turn over rocks to see the squiggly little worms and bugs underneath them. You ever remember doing that? Turn over the rock and you see it and you put it back. And in fact, James is saying, turn over the rocks of your heart and examine all the squiggly little sins, large and small, and be willing to admit them. But he goes further than this. He says we need to confess them to God and man. Jesus said this, you've heard it, You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder uh, shall be liable to the court. This is Matthew 5.21. 5.22, he says this, But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Let's we'll stop right there. Again, this is Matthew 5. Basically, Jesus is saying that if you've sinned against your brother by you've sinned against your brother by being angry and sinfully speaking against them, 
He says, look, this sin, which may not seem like much to you, will make you guilty enough to go into a fiery hell. Remember, James said, one transgression of the law is enough to make you a a transgressor of the entire law. Now, you might think you have this Christianity thing down. But do you really? Listen to this. What does Jesus say you should do then when you've sinned against your brother? In Matthew 5.23, here's what he says. This is not separate, right? We've, sometimes we use these, these scriptures and, and we, we quote one passage, five, basically 5.21 and 22, but we have to remember 5.23 goes with it. He says this, Therefore, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at, at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, in other words, you remember that you've done something against him, you've sinned against him in some way, it's a, this is a, we've got to remember, this is a solemn and a serious reflection. You've meditated on your life and you've realized that you've done something grievous against your brother or sister. So what are you to do? Here's what, what James, oh, not James, Jesus says in Matthew 5.24. He says this, Leave your offering there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. What are you to do? You're to leave your offering and be reconciled. It's that important. God does not want your tainted sacrifice. He does not want your tainted worship. Just as Samuel told Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. God wants your obedience. He wants your obedient worship. He wants you to obey. So then you go to your brother and you confess your sins to him and you make things right between, between the two of you. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 5.25, Make friends quickly with the, your opponent on, at law while you are with him and on, on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into the prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you paid up the last cent. Jesus then... He's calling us though, then to be proactive, to even be eager to go to our brother and sister seeking reconciliation. We don't hesitate. We go and we make it right. We, we're self-sacrificial in doing so. And we must remember then. So that's, it's confessing. It's going to our brother and saying, I've wronged you. But we must remember, as we saw with the story of Corey Tinboom, we must remember then that, that, that confession of sin always leads to cleansing. Always. True confession, where I'm truly confessing sin. I'm truly going to you and I'm saying, I have sinned against you, brother. I have sinned against you, sister. It leads to cleansing. You see, clearly, James's people have sinned against one another. Our sin always negatively affects other people. Your sin always negatively affects others. John MacArthur says this, The aim of confession, then, is not to erase consequences. It's to restore joy. Then, and then the consequences are what they are. Your sins have consequences. They're like rocks thrown into the, in the pond. And the ripples go and touch every shore. But God does does promise when you've confessed and repented that He will show you loving kindness and compassion because you are His eternal child. Your justification is settled forever. End quote. Beloved, the purity of the body of Christ depends upon your willingness to confess sins. The Apostle John says this, If we say we have no sin, 1 John 1.8, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to what? This is key. To cleanse us. To cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. So John is saying, you will sin. And you will sin against your brother or sister in Christ. It will happen. The key key then is confession. Confession. 
to God and men. Look back at the text in James 5. James says this, to confess sins, but he says, he says to one another. Let's not miss the one another. He's speaking of a mutual confession. This is one believer to another, and it calls for both to be willing to confess. For both to be willing to confess. You've heard it said there's two sides to every dispute, right? Beloved, I'm, I'm here to tell you there's two sides to most sins. Two sides. We don't sin in a vacuum, so to speak. Now you may be asking, what about confession to a priest or minister? Is James talking about that? There's nothing in this text that says that we are to confess sin to, in that manner <laughs> unless it's the minister you've sinned against. Then you need to go to him. It's the way we, that we need to go to people we, can, we sin against. We need to confess you may be asking, is James speaking of a public confession of sins? In other words, am I being called to publicly confess sins? And I think the answer is yes and no. There is a time and place for public confession of sin. We must be willing to do so when the situation calls for this action. But there are some things which require wisdom and maturity to handle. We, we can't miss that. And it may not be fit for open discussion because of the potential for hurt. We mustn't, though, use this as an excuse to hide our sins. It reminds you then, that would remind us of Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve's initial response to God after the fall. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees. Why did they hide themselves? Because they were hiding their sin. Beloved, we can't hide our sin. We need to be willing to speak uh, openly confessing sin. Again, with wisdom. With wisdom. Seeking out someone who, who is, is wise and mature. When David sinned by laying with Bathsheba, murdering her husband, he kept silent about it. Here are his words which, again, prove instructive to us. In Psalm 32.3, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained as with the fever heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will, tra- I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Beloved, do you want to have right relationships with your families? With your brothers and sisters in Christ? Then you must be willing to confess sin. Start with your spouse. Tell, tell them uh, the ways that you sinned against them. Admit your poor attitude. Confess your harsh t- tone. What, whatever it is, tell them when you have put your desires ahead of theirs. Be willing to ask forgiveness from your children. It's huge. You know, there's two types of parents in this world. Those who have sinned against their children and those who have sinned against them and asked forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, you must model this behavior, especially to your kids. You are not perfect. Remember that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Confess to them when you use harsh words. Confess when you use harsh words with your spouse and with your children. And as you know, there are plenty of opportunities to confess in the church. Maybe it's a harsh word which is spoken in a meeting. Or maybe it was when you didn't quite go as, uh, things didn't quite go as you wanted it to go and you lashed out against your brother or sister in Christ. Confess. Be willing to admit wrong. Beloved, if we want to have great relationships with one another, if we want to have powerful relationships, we want to have relationships with power from on high, let me, let me say this. We must confess sin to one another. You know, one commentator even said this. He said, 
do you desire revival in the land? You desire, do you desire a, a people to truly come to Christ and, and people to come, the lost to come to be saved? If you want true revival, then it will start with the church of God. Church of the living God. I can tell you this, nothing fires revival like confession of sin. Here's what, here's what he said, Will Varner. A study of the history of revival shows that the real revivals have been initiated with public confession of sin. And I just commend you to read Nehemiah 8. Read Nehemiah 8 if you want to see what, a, what true revival looks like. Let's look at point number two. Point number two, pray for one another. James says, and pray, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This, this verse brings back up this, the subject of prayer, especially as it pertains to our relationships for, with one another. If you want to have right relationships before the Lord, then we must be praying for one another. We must be lifting our brothers and sisters up to the Lord in prayer. And James again brings back this subject of healing. It seems that, that James's people, that their sin was leading to sickness and even death. Now, as I said last week, we need to be careful. We need to be careful in assuming that sickness is caused by specific sin. But at times there is causation. At times our sin can lead to sickness and even death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, he's speaking of communion. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and or drinks the cup and of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Then he says this in verse thirty. For this reason, for what reason, Paul? Those they, they didn't they weren't eating and drinking they were drink, eating and drinking judgment to themselves because they weren't judging the body rightly they weren't examining themselves they were guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep and he's not talking about the the nap that I'm going to take this afternoon he's talking about death that that there is a causation. 1 Corinthians 11.31 But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. There's a connection then between sin and sickness. So James calls for his people to confess sin and to pray for one another that there would be healing. You know, I don't, I don't think we truly understand the power of prayer. We don't realize prayer's power because we don't pray enough. And many times we don't pray for the right things. We don't pray trusting that God answers prayer. We lack faith and we pray selfishly. James says don't do that. He says that we need to pray for one another. We need to selflessly pray for our brethren. We must pray for their growth. We must pray for their healing. We must pray for our relationships with them. We must pray for their walk, especially as they endure trials and difficulties. James goes on to say, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You could translate this verse, and I think the ESV that Jonathan read from this morning is similar. It says this, that you could translate it this way, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It has great power as it is working. James has already told these people that God opposes the prideful man. And there's no man more prideful than one who refuses to come to his knees in prayer. Did you get that? There is no man or woman more prideful than one who refuses to come to his knees in prayer to a holy God. Said another way, prideful people don't pray. They refuse to humble themselves before the Lord. And said, said a different way, Humble people make it a regular habit to pray to God. Are you prideful or are you humble? If you're prideful, then you're, you, you reject prayer. If you're humble, then you're willing to go to the Lord in prayer. You desire to go to the Lord in prayer. And as, as James has said, God gives grace to what? The humble. God gives grace to the humble. And that's truly astonishing. 
That's truly astonishing. If you're living a righteous life before God, you have God's power at the tip of your tongue. If you're living a righteous life before Him. Beloved, are you praying for one another? Start with your families. Pray for your spouse daily. Ask for God to grow them in Christ's likeness. Pray, pray for their purity. There are so many opportunities for, for a lack of purity in this world. So many images that are thrown up just in front of us all the time that we, become, that we just become numb to them. Pray for their purity. Uh, pray for your children. Are you struggling with them? Uh, do you have a rebellious child? Pray for them. You must be praying for them. Pray for the brethren. It's easier to love those whom you regularly, regularly pray for. It's hard to love those you're not praying for. Conversely, it is easier, easier to struggle with people whom you've never held up in the power of prayer. This is, beloved, one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible. You can change bad situations with your prayer. If you're a righteous man or woman, you can change bad situations by praying. You can help difficult relationships with your prayer. You can change things. It's not you ultimately, right? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. But it's, it's amazing that we can participate in that with Him. Beloved, walk in righteousness and pray. Third, third point. This one goes quickly. Observe faithful examples. We are to observe faithful examples. Look at James 5.17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruits. As an example of faithful prayer, James offers Elijah. He says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he's no different than us. There's nothing supernatural about him. I mean, it's funny because we tend to think of these prophets <coughs> as being something different, right? Obviously, they're prophets. But, but in reality, they, you know, in our vernacular, vernacular, they put their pants on the same as we do, right? They don't, they're, not, they're not different than we are. They're, they're flesh and blood like we are. There's nothing supernatural. He's a, he's a sinner like us. He's a, he has weaknesses like us. Yet James says that he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain. This is not, this is not the first time that James has invoked a, an Old Testament example to encourage his people. Earlier he used the example of Abraham as one whose work showed that he truly believed God. He also used Rahab as one who was willing to give up her very life to serve God. And he also gave the example of Old Testament prophets who suffered for the speaking in the name of God. He mentioned Job as an example of one who faithfully endured hardship. Now, Elijah's story comes from 1 Kings. If you want to turn there quickly, I want to show you a couple of things. First, uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. Verse 1, we're introduced to Elijah. And it says there that uh, surely the, the God of Israel lives, as surely as the God of Israel lives. Um, Elijah says that as surely as he lives before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Then it says, the word of the Lord came to him saying, and he, he, the Lord told him to go. And, and in verse 7, it happened after a while that the, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, it doesn't specifically say there that he prayed that there would be no rain. But clearly, from what James is saying, clearly uh, it's been revealed to James that, that he prayed that there wouldn't be no rain. Prayed that there would be no rain. Now, now, Elijah was sent to the widow. Uh, uh, in Zarephath. And we see the story there in, uh, through verse 16. 
And then we see here that, that this widow's son, in verse 17, the widow's son uh, got sick and, and died. And in verse 21, uh, they, it, the, woman, the woman came to him and said, Hey, look, my son's dead. And so he says in verse 19, Give me, give me your son. And then verse 21, Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of, of Elijah and the life of the child re- returned to him and he revived. So we see an example of Elijah praying to God. Again, Elijah is a man of flesh and bones like us. In verse 24, 1724, it says this, Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of God, or the word of the Lord, in your mouth is truth. Again, we see righteous. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much, or are effective. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. And so we, we see here that he, uh, he goes to Obadiah, and Obadiah, he said, Elijah sends Obadiah to Ahab in verse 16. And Obadiah went to Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And then we see this showdown. Verse 19, Now send and gather to me, this is, this is uh, Elijah, uh, all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of, of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So they went to Mount Carmel, the, two, the, the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and, and then Elijah says in verse 21, uh, To all the people, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord God is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. And then Elijah said in verse 22, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, for Baal's prophets are 450 men. Then we see this story of him challenging Baal's prophets. And he tells them to set up the altar and and call fire down from heaven. And they did. And of course, the the God, uh, the Baal did not answer. Baal did not answer because he doesn't exist. They even cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out, verse 28. And when midday, when midday had passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah says, come near to me. And he, he sets up the altar, his altar. And he said, do it a second time. Uh, he says, set up the altar, he poured water on it. And then he does what? It says in verse 36, At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, that that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have not... And that you have turned their, back, their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. What did Elijah do there? He prayed. He was a righteous man and he prayed and God answered his prayer. In verse 42, after this happens, he, he slays the, the prophets of Baal. In verse 42, he went, uh, Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now and look toward the sea. And he went up and he looked, and there is nothing. He said, and Go back seven times. Verse 44, And it came at the seventh time, he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. Go up and, and he says, Go up and tell, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. Look, the rain's coming. I prayed and I know the rain's coming. Keep going up seven times and look, 
I was actually standing there a, a year and a half ago, stand, standing on top of Mount Carmel. And you can see Jezreel Valley in front of you. You turn, and, on, and behind you, you see the sea, exactly as the Scripture says it. And he sent, his, he sent this man up there, and he said, Look, and the, the, clouds, the, the cloud as small as a, a, a man's hand kept, was coming up in the sea, and he says, Look, it's going to rain. And it did. In verse 45, In a little while, while the sky grew black with clouds and wind, there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And unless we think that, that Ahab, uh, Elijah was something special, obviously he was a prophet of God. But he wasn't anything special because he had weaknesses just as ours. Because right after that, what happens? What happens? Jezebel threatens him. And he flees. He runs. Because he was afraid. But we see, though. What do we see? We see that God answers the prayers of a righteous man. We have the power of God at, our, at the tip of our tongue. If we live righteously, if we walk righteously before the Lord, He will. He is the answerer of prayer. If, if you're struggling in your life and you're dealing with, with issues in your life, uh, pursue righteousness and pray to God that He may fix those things, because He will. Pray to Him in faith. Beloved, I call to you to put these three commands to practice in your life. Confess your sins to one another. Pray to one or pray for one another. That is, and observe the faithful examples of the Old Testament. If you have sinned against your brother in Christ, go to them, confess your sins, make things right to them with them. If you are struggling with besetting sins, confess it to God. Don't hold back. Don't make it less than it is. Find a mature saint. Confess your sin to them. Surely you'll find mercy and peace from God. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Some of my greatest relationships have been ones where there's been an openness and accountability in confessed sin. Charles Spurgeon says, There is mercy for a sinner, but there is no mercy for the man who will not own himself a sinner. And if you find yourself on the receiving end of one of these relationships, please understand that you've been given a great responsibility. Be merciful. Be merciful. Judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy. Hold your brother or sister accountable, yes. But you must realize that you are no different but for the grace of God. Jesus Himself said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and he drowned in the depth of the sea. Yes, be there for your brother. Hold him accountable, but show mercy. We should be then driven to prayer for one another. Pray for one another. Pray without ceasing. Pray that your brothers and sisters would not fall into the deceitfulness of sin. Pray that they would grow in the grace of God. Pray that, that they, you would have an even more powerful relationship with them. Pray for their healing. And again, continue to look to the Old Testament for examples. Abraham's faith. Rahab's faith, Elijah's prayer life, Job's endurance, the prophet's suffering, Moses' humility. It's all right there to read about and understand. Spend time meditating on these great examples of the faith. The more you know and understand these stories, of the stories of their lives, the more you'll be able to apply them in your own walk. You can even start in Hebrews 11, the Hall, the hall of Faith. So to recap, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, and observe faithful examples. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning, early afternoon. Father, I pray that we would be a people who confess our sins to one another. I pray for those relationships. I pray for maturity. Lord, I pray that 
we would walk in wisdom. Pray, Lord, and ask that we would be a people who pray for one another. Lord, that we would be a people who hold one another up in the power of prayer. That we would be a people who pray in faith, knowing that you are an answerer of prayer. That you, in your will, will move. That if we are persistent in coming to you, trusting in you, that you are one who answers. Father, we thank you for these faithful examples. We thank you for the example of Abraham and his faith. We thank you for the example of Elijah and his prayer. We thank you for the the example of Job's endurance and for the example of, of how you are faithful to answer prayer in the midst of difficulty. Lord, we thank you that we can see the prophets suffering and how they uh, spoke in your name and how they suffered for your sake, yet, yet you were faithful to them. Father, we thank you for, for all those examples that you've given. We praise you. We thank you this, today for this church. May your word be effective today. May we heed it. May we live it. In Christ's name, amen.